Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Galatians. That's it. Just one epistle of Paul, which is kind of nice to focus our attention on one epistle. But once again, we need to know a little bit of a background, what's going on. He is going to jump around quite a bit, but he's going to address some very significant problems that have surfaced. So we do need to do a little bit of background before we jump into chapter one. You know, the book of Galatians really reminds me of a time when I was working on digging trenches. I had I had bought this house and I had to do the landscaping and it was tiered. I had it wasn't just one level, but I had to cover different tiers. And so I had levels that I was digging trenches in and I was laying the pipe and getting it put in. And every time I would dig the trenches, I would go to work and the next day it would rain. And and the rain would come even though the weatherman said it wasn't going to rain. And I would come back from work and I would be so depressed because all my trenches would be full of dirt. And so then I had to dig them out again. And that's kind of like the book of Galatians. You see, the letter that Paul writes tells us that, you know, when he first visits these people, everything's going great. They they felt the spirit. They believed in Christ. He's established these churches. Now, Galatia is in Anatolia, which is in modern day Turkey. And there were cities throughout uh, this area, and we believe that Ankara, which is the the capital of Turkey today, was one of those cities that Paul visited. And these people were converted to Jesus, and they believed in Paul's witness. And then after he leaves, and we don't know when, but probably shortly thereafter, after he leaves, a group of Judaizers, as they're called, come and they teach everybody there that Paul had just taught that Paul was doing it wrong. In other words, they rain on his trenches and his trenches get full of dirt. And then Paul basically writing this letter says, uh, he's trying to undo all the damage that they've done. And I want you to see the big picture because this is every book of scripture, especially as it points to the latter days. Do you remember Jesus took his disciples out to the Mount of Olives and talked about the latter days? His biggest concern was that the very elect would be fooled by an imitation that he would teach truth and something or someone else would come in and try and subvert that truth with an imitation. And that's exactly what happened after Paul left them. Someone came in with an imitation and fooled them into believing. And they were fooled because Paul will say, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into grace of Christ unto another gospel. And we see this in the Book of Mormon. One of the chief messages of the Book of Mormon is to present the case of the Antichrists so that we are prepared for the Antichrist in our day. When we did Come Follow Me in the Book of Mormon, we talked about how the pattern of Antichrist in the Book of Mormon is a pattern of those in our day. And we need to learn to combat the influence of Antichrist who are going to try and fool us into an imitation. So this is a very common gospel theme. They were fooled by an imitation, and now Paul's going to have to come back and say, no, let's go back to the truth. Let's recenter ourselves. Let's go back to ground zero. And what is the truth? And that's the book of Galatians. What is truth? What is error? And how do we discern between the two? I think Paul is going to emphasize his authority in the book of Galatians and say, hey, I'm an apostle. Don't listen to these other teachers. And I think that is a big problem that the early Christian church had. Remember, there wasn't satellite communication. We didn't have uh, the enzyme being sent out to these churches. Remember, these were house churches. Many of them were Jewish communities that believed in Torah, but then Paul came and taught them that Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied of, that Jesus was the Son of God and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And Mike, they didn't have a New Testament they could turn to. They didn't necessarily have a book of New Testament to know the gospel of Jesus. So they don't have a set of scriptures that can keep them straight as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. We don't have a New Testament for quite some time. Now, the interesting thing about the Galatians is they're probably not Jews. 
These are people that were transplants. They came from Europe, probably Germany and France. Uh, the word for the Galatians can be related to the word for Gauls or the people from France. And these people were probably Celtic. Now, the Celtic people had a different belief system than the Jews. They were very much what would be called pagans today. And so we have hints of this in the book of Galatians if you go to chapter 4. Paul's kind of talking about their past, and he says in verse 7, "'Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when ye knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods.'" So Paul is referencing their past pagan experience. Now, we're going to put in the show notes some videos if you want to get into who these people were. We're not going to go into that kind of detail in this podcast, but the people that had settled in this area of Galatia were Celtic. They were from Europe, and they came to this area after a conflict that a leader had in Bithynia. He needed help, and these people were like mercenaries. They were warriors, and they helped in a war in Bithynia, and because of their help, they were granted the land of Galatia. And this place, this location, is in modern-day Turkey in Anatolia, and these individuals, over time, so they got there around 270 B.C., by the time Paul shows up, they've had like three centuries of being Hellenized. And so the idea is this. They probably went from their Celtic religious experience or their Celtic understanding of who the gods were, and over 300 years had evolved into a more Hellenistic background. And they had views more in line with the typical Greek-speaking world, the Hellenistic world of Paul's day. They were pagan. So these people, by and large, were probably not Jews. And Paul is emphasizing to them, hey, you guys have left this belief system where there were these other gods, and now you guys know Christ. But now Paul's having to undo this big problem. And what's the problem? The main problem of the book of Galatians is this. Paul's taught them in his first missionary journey the gospel of Christ. They've been converted to Christ, and they believe that they need to trust him and have faith in him. But then... After he leaves, people from Jerusalem, the mother church, they come and they teach that you have to live the law of Moses. Now, the way Paul's going to describe this in the book of Galatians is he's going to call it the works of the law. He's going to say that in Galatians 2, verse 16. Know that a man is not justified or made righteous by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That word for justified just means to be declared righteous or made just. And so Paul is essentially saying it's Christ that makes us just or Christ that makes us righteous. It is not by the works of the law of Moses. And another phrase that he uses over and over again in this book is the word circumcision. They which be of the circumcision. He'll say things like that. And what that means is you don't have to live the law of Torah. You don't have to live all 613 codified laws in the law of Moses to believe in Jesus. You just have to trust him and believe in him and follow him. And another term that Paul will use to describe the law of Moses is a, a pedagogos. It's kind of where we get the word pedagogy. He says that in verse 24 of Galatians 3. He says, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And Paul doesn't really get into the rules, but I really think he fleshes out some of the ways you can know if you're following Christ in the fifth chapter. He's going to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. And to me, that's a really good guidepost to know how I'm doing. But that's the big picture. And let me give you an application of that big picture so you can see this in our lives. So you can say, oh my goodness, we're doing that same thing. The idea here is you have left one level and gone up to a higher level, but then you came back to the lower level. That's kind of the gist. You have made progress. You left. So imagine leaving the telestial room, letting you let go of the telestial things, and then you came into a terrestrial room only to return back to the telestial room. It's kind of the symbolism of Lot's wife. She went back to Sodom and was destroyed with it. So Paul's now going to talk about the higher and the lower. 
He's going to say, basically, you've gone back to the lower, and he's addressing all of us that have made progress and then kind of reverted back to the lower. And so that's kind of an application of the bigger picture is don't let go of the higher and go back into the lower. Let's talk about the benefits of the higher. And what was the whole purpose of the law of Moses was to get you into the higher. Yeah. Paul's using a lot of descriptions to talk about the law of Moses. And one of the things he's trying to do is contrast himself with those teachers from Jerusalem. The people that come from Jerusalem, the Judaizers, believe that to follow Jesus, you have to live all 613 laws of Torah. And one of the things that goes with this is that they keep the festivals, also the food purity laws. I mean, everything. Paul's going to talk about circumcision over and over again, but that's kind of code speak for this. In Paul's day... Many Jews that were very observant, very orthodox, wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. They would not really uh, have table fellowship with them. And so as the Christian community outside Jerusalem started to grow, Paul would realize that these people that are outside of the Jewish community, especially the Gentiles, they believed in Christ, but there was some tension there, like, do I have to live these laws? And so the Jerusalem conference that was discussed in Acts chapter 15 is actually hinted at in the second chapter. And Paul comes and he writes this letter to the Galatians, and he tries to explain this to them. And he says, those teachers, those Judaizers that followed me and kind of undid all my work, that filled in all my trenches, that basically are undoing everything I did, um, they have that view, but we've corrected that view. We've come to the conclusion in the Jerusalem conference that that's not necessary. Bryce, when it comes to this undoing what what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember when you were in Mexico City, did you ever have this experience where you're out teaching and you teach a family and you give them a copy of the Book of Mormon, they have the spirit with them, they feel it, and you set a follow-up appointment, and then a group from another religious denomination follows you around and then tells everybody you've been teaching that you've been doing it wrong. Yep. And can you, do you remember how frustrated yep. that one? Was, Let's <laughs> fix everything that the Mormons just taught you. So frustrating. It's like trying to swim upstream. And I think that's really the tone of Paul's letter. I mean, if you look in the very first part of chapter 3, he, he's really frustrated with them, and he's calling them unwise. The, the English is, oh, foolish Galatians. Uh, Paul's really frustrated. So, so with that as an overview of, of the book of Galatians, we're just going to go chapter by chapter through the text. It's pretty short, six chapters, and if you're teaching a, a Sunday school class, I mean, there's lots of ways to do it. Um, I think chapter by chapter is good. I also think sometimes you're limited with time. And so Bryce and I will talk about, okay, if you have limited time, what are some things that you certainly would want to emphasize? The first chapter is Paul recounting his own conversion and his calling as evidence that what he's saying is legitimate. He's also calling out the people that are perverting the gospel of Christ. That's verses 7 and 8. And I I remember this, Bryce, being on my mission, people would use this as opposition to the message of the restoration, because Moroni brings the plates to Joseph Smith, and then I'm sure you've heard this too, right, on your mission. Somebody would say, you know, I'm just going to read chapter 1, verse 8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. We see Paul also referencing this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, where he talks about people preaching another gospel or another Jesus. That's essentially his warning here. But in this letter, the issue is the people that are coming from Jerusalem. But he says in verse 6, he says, I marvel how quickly you've reverted to another gospel. So we've got another Jesus who teaches another gospel, another plan of salvation with other prophets. And the idea is you've got to find truth. You can't be saved by believing falsehoods. You have to know truth. Jesus said in that great intercessory prayer, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the true God. And so Paul's saying, you've gone back, you've reverted to another gospel. You've been fooled by an imitation. I think that's the issue. He does say this in the first chapter, in verse 11 and 12 of Galatians 1, I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. 
but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think that's the issue. One of my favorite quotes to me was taught to me by Joseph Fielding McConkie, but he's quoting his father, Bruce McConkie, where he says, God stands revealed or he forever remains unknown. And that's Paul's authority. Paul's authority is this. Hey, you guys, I wasn't taught this by going to rabbinical school. I wasn't taught this in Jerusalem by the elders there. I actually saw the Savior. He was revealed to me. And because of this, this is what it is. It is what it is. That's my authority. Now, Joseph Smith talked about this as well. And he said, the greatest truth we can know is that there's a God. But then the next truth is right near it. And he said, the next truth is not just to know that there's a God, but we have to have a correct idea of who he is, his character and his nature. You see, if you believe in God and you have an incorrect view of his nature, that is going to be a problem because it can lead to all kinds of spurious things. And that's what we see in the early Christian church. We have all these different groups that are fighting and vying for supremacy. And this idea, this tension between the Gentile church, Paul's teaching that, hey, we have to believe in Christ, this word that is going to be used for faith, have faith in Christ, that is going to be in conflict with the Judaizers in Jerusalem that are saying you have to live the laws of Torah. And by the way, James, who is in Jerusalem, is sitting in this really difficult position where he's the brother of Jesus, and he's the bishop there in the church, and he's trying to keep the peace. And so at times, you will see that apostles will actually follow Torah to keep the peace. We see this in a lot of places, and and Paul's going to talk about this, but Paul's also going to be frustrated with it. Now, my contention with Paul is Paul's going to call out people that are are doing the Jewish stuff to keep the peace, and he's going to call those guys out. But if you remember, Paul himself does that. Remember, Paul himself had Timothy circumcised. So Paul's going to rail on people that say, you need to be circumcised, but we just need to sit in this space and know that Paul did that too. And so not everything's as cut and dry as it seems, but overall, big picture, Paul's message still holds. To these people, you don't have to live uh, the laws of Torah. And the reason he knows that is because he is grounded in what he knows. And I know we've talked about this many times, but I just love that moment from Joseph Smith in his history where he says, I had seen a vision. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. Holding on to what you know is true, that's ground zero. I have received from God this revelation. I think that's where we have to go back to. If some people come back and suggest we go a different route, we've got to go back to what has come to my soul as revelation? What is ground zero? Paul just simply says, look, I taught it by revelation. Alma's going to say the same thing when he preaches in Zarahemla. It's kind of the same idea. Get back to ground zero. Do ye not suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. And how do ye suppose that I know of their surety? Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. That's what Paul is saying is this religion, our truth, is what God gives us. It's not what I interpret. It's not what men think is right. It's not popular opinion. It's the revelations that God has declared, whether I found them in my personal revelation or I have discovered them in printed revelations called scriptures. We have to go back to what God has revealed to your soul and not worry so much about what other people are interpreting that they are saying is correct. I know for myself that these things are true. Therefore, I'm not going to deviate. I think that's the call of Galatians 1. Yeah. That's spot on. The end of chapter one is Paul basically recounting, okay, what happened after I had the revelation? And he says to them that he did not go to Jerusalem immediately. I think one of the reasons why he's saying this, and I don't know, but I think one of the reasons why he's saying this is because he is not getting his authority 
from Jerusalem or from the teachers there, but he's getting his authority from the Lord. But then he does say, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him for 15 days. That's verse 18 of the first chapter. I think one of the reasons why he's saying this is because he's trying to trace his authority to the head apostle. Peter is the head apostle in Jerusalem. He's the one that has authority. We're going to see some traces of this in the next chapter where he refers to the Jerusalem conference to try to illustrate to these people, I am a legitimate apostle. And then near the end of chapter one, he says in verse 20, the things I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. He really is emphasizing his authority. Paul is clarifying, I got my keys from Peter. I received authority from Peter. But power comes from God. Let me interpret that in our own lives. We receive authority when hands are laid upon our heads and we are commissioned to do something. When I was called as a missionary, hands were laid upon my head and I had authority to preach the gospel. But that doesn't necessarily give me power. That doesn't give me the power to preach the gospel. I have authority. Joseph Smith will say, many are called, but few are chosen. And he's referring to people who have authority, but don't necessarily exercise the power of heaven. Paul is saying, I have seen God confirm my power by the miracles which are coming about in the preaching of the gospel. Paul is in a very humble way saying, I have power from God because of the way I live my life. I have authority because the key holder laid his hands upon my head and gave me the authority to do it. So yes, I've been to Peter. I have been commissioned as an apostle. I am a set-apart apostle. But why you should listen to me is that God is with me. And I think the interpretation for you and I is, in my calling, I have authority to do my calling. Now, whether or not I have power depends on how I live. Paul is living in such a way that he knows God is with him. And that's why the Galatian saints should listen to him, because God is with him, and that's his power. Let's go to the second chapter of Galatians. Paul, recounting his conversion and kind of his experience, he says in verse 1, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Verse 3, but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. That's kind of a clunky translation of the Greek. Essentially what Paul is saying in verse three is that Titus was not circumcised. So with that in mind, he's going to Jerusalem. This is Paul referring to the Jerusalem conference. Remember in Acts 15, there was this conference of the leading elders of the church and the apostles, and the apostles decreed that to follow Christ and to be a member of the church, you don't have to live the law of Moses. That's going to be called the law in this book, or those of the circumcision, that you don't have to be circumcised. And in the midst of this, Paul says in verse 4 that false brethren unawares came in to spy out our liberty. In other words, there were Jews who believed in Christ as Messiah, and they're saying, hey guys, you're doing it wrong. And they come in, and they push against Paul's doctrine. Go to verse 7. When they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. That's kind of a clunky translation. I'm going to read another translation. Verse 7, another translation of verse 7 reads, On the contrary, they saw clearly that I had been entrusted by God with the gospel as it is directed to those who are not circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to those who are circumcised. Verse 8, For he who was at work in Peter, creating an apostolate to those who are circumcised, was also at work in me, 
sending me to the Gentiles. The way I read this, Paul was in this unique position. He was schooled in Judaism, and yet he had this vision of God. He had seen Jesus, and he had connections with the Gentile world. He was able to travel to them and speak their language. And so because of that, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, on the other hand, at least as it's reflected here in Galatians 2, was sent to those that were of Jewish descent. That seems to be the indication that Paul's given in Galatians 2. And so in other words, God used people that had certain gifts that were suited to to that work, and he used them appropriately to go and do that which they were gifted to do. But he's also addressing what we talked about back in Acts, and that is being slow to move forward, holding on to tradition and being slow to move forward. And I... I don't want to necessarily call out Peter, but Paul kind of calls out Peter and says, Peter was slow to move forward. Peter was holding on to the tradition of Judaism, of the law, of the old way. He's not letting it go as quickly as I let it go. Now, Paul's change was abrupt. He was a fierce Pharisee. He was a strict Pharisee after the law. And when Christ appeared unto him, he ran forward and embraced the law of Christ. And he's kind of pointing out that some people were slower to let go of the law and move forward to the law of Christ. Some people kind of held on, even Peter. For example, in verse 12, he says, before this whole wave of Gentiles, and it's okay to be a Gentile, you don't have to go back and live the law, before that kind of wave hit, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But then all of a sudden, he kind of became embarrassed to eat with the Gentiles. He wasn't, no, he was no longer eating with the Gentiles because he was nervous about offending the old law, the circumcised hardcore Jew who felt like that was inappropriate. Peter was a little nervous to make them upset. And so Paul says to Peter in verse 14, wait a minute, if you're a Jew, but you live after the manner of Gentiles, why are you forcing the Gentiles to be Jews? In other words, Peter, you've kind of let go of the law of Moses. You've moved past the law of Moses that Christ fulfilled, and you're not ardently holding on to the law. Then why should the Gentile converts have to go back and embrace so much of the law of Moses? We need to let this thing go. We need to be done with the old and move forward and embrace the new. All of this is kind of setting that stage of you've gone back. And to the Latter-day Saints, I think the message is when you make spiritual progress and you let go of bad habits and old habits, don't run back to them. We need to let go of the old and embrace the progress we've made. Move forward. It's kind of like pulling your hand out of water. Something has to fill that hole. It will not remain there. If you pull a bad habit out of your life, something has to fill that hole. Now, what's the most natural thing to fill a hole in our life? The thing that was there. That's the most natural thing in the world. I love how Boyd K. Packer said it, speaking of thoughts in my head, but I'm going to apply it to habits as well. Boyd K. Packer said, do not try to merely discard a bad habit or a bad thought. Replace it. When you try to eliminate a bad habit, if the spot where it used to be is left open, it will sneak back and crawl again into that empty space. It grew there. It will struggle to stay there. When you discard it, fill up the spot where it was. Replace it with something good. Replace it with unselfish thoughts, with unselfish acts. Then, if an evil habit or addiction tries to return, it will have to fight for attention. Sometimes it may win. Bad thoughts may have to be evicted a hundred times or a thousand But if they have to be evicted 10,000 times, never surrender to them. You are in charge of you. What Paul is saying is you have to discard the old and replace it with the new. Let go of the law of Moses and embrace the law of Christ. 
If you don't, you're going to go right back to the law of Moses. You're going to revert to what grew in that space that you removed. And again, I don't mean to call Peter out, but Paul is, seems to saying even Peter kind of gravitated back to the old without fully embracing the new. So let's rise above and let go of the old and embrace the new. Replace it. Don't discard it. And I like that, Bryce, and I just can't help but call out Paul also, because Paul does the same thing. He doesn't tell the Galatians he's doing this, but in Acts 16, he has this disciple named Timothy, and in verse 3 of Acts 16, he says, him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul is doing the same thing. Paul is in this really tough circumstance where he's with this individual who has Greek descent, and so Paul has him circumcised so that he can go teach these people. And so I'm just acknowledging the tension. I know it's there, and I'm just I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just acknowledging it. And I think that's the point. I don't think Paul is criticizing Peter. He's just using that as an example. This is a mistake we all make. Uh, Peter made it. Paul made it. We all make this mistake, and so I don't think he's as much denigrating Peter as he's using that to illustrate the point he's trying to make. Now, before we leave chapter 2, I just want to call this out. It's verse 16. I think it's a really good verse. I think it can be misused. So I'm just going to read it. This is uh, Galatians 2.16. Paul writes, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ..." Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That word justified means to be declared righteous or to be made right or to be made righteous. And my reading of verse 16, Paul is saying, through my trust, pisteos, that word for faith, it means trust, it's reciprocal. In the Greek context, pistis or pisteos is this word that denotes this idea of deep and abiding trust. That will be translated as faith. And Paul, in this letter, is writing that it's my trust in Jesus that will make me righteous because Christ is righteous. And Paul is essentially saying we don't need the works of the law to be declared righteous. What we need is Christ. I think that's a good reading. I think this verse can be misused. And I remember the first time hearing it on my mission, people would kind of approach me and say, you people in your church are doing it wrong because you believe you can be saved by your works. And I remember thinking, I, I've never taught that. I don't see that in the Book of Mormon. But yet, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we do believe that you need to live commandments. We do believe that you need to do certain things. And because of this, sometimes it may appear to people that we think by keeping the commandments, we earn salvation. I mean, we even use terms like this, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We, we have phrases like this. Or it is by grace that we are saved after all you can do. So it kind of is emphasizing what, Bryce? Do it. Do all that you can. And some people see that as going too far in the direction of it's too much on you. There is a delicate balance between how much is on God and how much is on, on you. Now, both extremes are incorrect. If you put too much on God, you are out of balance. If you put too much on you, you are out of balance. Now, sometimes the people who are out of balance on one direction criticize the people who are out of balance on the other direction, but both are out of balance. It is a combination of, I need to do something. I can't do nothing and expect salvation, but I also can expect that it's all on me. It's a combination of, I need to do something, and Christ needs to do a lot of something. And it's not equal proportions. I don't do as much as Christ does. There's no question about that. But I need to do my portion. And Jesus will tell you when you are and you aren't doing your portion. That's the whisperings of the Holy Ghost. And I think if you remember our first discussion when we started the epistles, Bryce shared a quote, and I'm not, I'm not really good at getting the whole quote right, but the quote went something like this. Don't cherry pick verses in the epistles as definitions of the gospel. We need to read the gospel message in its entirety. And the same can be held with this verse. If you cherry pick Galatians 2.16 and you just read that, 
as indicating what Paul's saying in the book of Galatians, I think you miss what he's saying. Because in the fifth chapter, Paul's going to say, no, you do need to be good. And by the way, it's just what Bryce said. The Holy Ghost will kind of point you in that direction. And if you're off the path, you're going to know because the Spirit's going to remind you and you're going to be entrenched in the works of the flesh. And if you have the Spirit, you're going to be obtaining the fruits of the Spirit. And so chapter 5 is a really good counterbalance to some people who use Galatians 2.16 as a way of saying, hey, all I have to do is say, I believe in Jesus and we're all good. I'm here saying that's not what faith in Christ meant in Paul's day. That word for faith pisteos or pistis, that word was a reciprocal trust. You showed trust in Christ by getting on the way, the path to follow him, and then he showed you, he reciprocated that, and he showed you trust by giving you the fruits of the Spirit, and you grow in grace for grace. That word for gift, you go, charis, you, you grow in the gifts of the Spirit as you show your trust in Christ. And that's what he's saying. I hope that's useful. I think sometimes certain parts of the epistles can be taken apart and weaponized. And I don't think that's the purpose, but I also understand Galatians can be kind of caustic. Paul's pretty fired up. I mean, that's really how chapter 3 starts off by him saying, oh, foolish Galatians. He's so frustrated that they're believing that they have to live the law of Moses. And we think one of the teachings that the people that came from Jerusalem used was this. They essentially said, hey, we are of the descendants of Abraham. You guys are not. You guys are pagans. And if you don't do all the things that God commanded Abraham to do, if you don't do circumcision, then you're going to have a problem. Now, I think one of Paul's arguments here is Abraham didn't have the law of Moses because he came hundreds of years before Moses, and God justified Abraham. And if God justified Abraham, he can justify you. And I think that's really what's going on in verses 6 through 9. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know therefore that they which are of faith— or that reciprocal trust, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. You guys are every bit as faithful as Abraham if you have that trust in Jesus. He says it again in verse 11. The just shall live by faith. So then he gets into what was the purpose of the law? What, what, why did Moses come? If Abraham was saved without the law of Moses, then what was the purpose of the law? Well, it was the law that was right for that people to bring them to Christ. So in verse 24, he says, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law wasn't the end, the law wasn't the means, nor is the law today the means. So many times people mistake the schoolmaster for the end result. For example, I love that in the tree of life, the people who get to the tree and stay at the tree, they fall on their knees because the tree brought them to the man that they've loved their whole life. Other times, it's kind of out of duty. It's just kind of our obligation. Latter-day Saints do the same thing. Sometimes we checklist our living of the gospel. Well, I read my scriptures. Check. I went to the temple. Check. I went to sacrament meeting. Check. I'm a faithful member of the church. And they're mistaking the schoolmaster for the end result. The reason I read my scriptures is to connect me to God, to Christ. If I'm reading them and I'm not getting to Christ, I've missed the whole point. But if I read the scriptures and it leads me to him and I fall at his feet and I love him, then that's what's intended. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. And only then are we justified by faith. It's only when you've connected with Christ that you're justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And 
I will just add this, the schoolmaster or the tutor or the guardian in Greek culture would work with and they would make sure that the individual child learned Greek or learned the sciences, whatever it was that was being taught. And sometimes this pedagogos would hit the student if they didn't get it right. I, I got to tell you, learning those Greek charts and having to, to memorize all those charts for, at times, I was grateful that I wasn't being hit with a stick. For me, being hit with a stick isn't very motivating. And I see Paul seeing that as well, where we can't keep the law. He talked about this in Romans, right? We are all going to fall short. The law the one thing it's really good at is showing us how we're not getting it right. We're not going to get it all right. And so the law of Moses became our tutor or our pedagogos or our schoolmaster until Jesus Christ came in order that we may be declared righteous because of our faith or trust in him. And so the faith having had appeared in us, we are no longer under a tutor. That's kind of my translation of Galatians 3, 24 and 25 as I read it. And I like that. Do you see the purpose of the law? And do you see the purposes of ordinances and covenants and practices of the church? Their end result has to be that it leads me to him. Otherwise, I've missed the whole point. And Paul's kind of saying, some of you have missed the whole point. And I think he's saying to all of us today, some of us have missed the point. So he continues in verse 27, for as many of you as have been baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. And you need to let go of what you were. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female for you have become one in Christ. So let go of who you were. Let go of the schoolmaster and allow me to tenderly invite all of you to let go of the checklist gospel living habits and become one in Christ. You don't get the prize because you checklisted them off. You get the prize because they led you to Christ. You were baptized and have put on Christ. You read the scriptures and have put on Christ. You went to the temple and have put on Christ. I think that's chapter three. Yeah. Now, before we leave Galatians chapter three, I just want to mention verse 27. Paul says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I think here in this verse, Paul is referencing the temple. That word for put on comes from the Greek and duo, which means to be endowed or to be clothed or to put on sacred vestments. And in the show notes, we give lots of references, both in the Old Testament and in the New, talking about this. In the Hebrew, it's labash. It's like to put on. And it's throughout, especially in Leviticus, as the priests put on linen garments. But we also read it in Genesis 3.21, that Adam and Eve are clothed, labash, with coats of skins. And so we read this in, in Genesis, we read this throughout Leviticus, but also throughout the New Testament. In Romans 13, 12, Paul says, let us put on the armor of light. In Romans 13, 14, he says, put on Christ and make not provision for the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 15, 53, he says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. In Ephesians 4.24, he says, Ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And in Colossians 3, 9, 9 and 10, he says, Seeing that you have put off the old man with his actions and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. 
He says it in a lot of other places as well, but I want to just end with this reference in Revelation 15, verse 6. When we read about the seven angels coming out of the temple, it talks about them being clothed in pure white linen, and it's using that conjugation of in duo in these passages. And so what we see here in all these passages is the individuals are to put on sacred vestments. And so the the connection between this putting on sacred vestments and putting on Christ, I think Paul is making sure we don't miss it. One of the things we do by putting on sacred vestments is it's kind of a term that has multiple meanings. It's multivalent. On one hand, yes, it's putting on sacred vestments, but it's also putting on his attributes. Verse 27, we were baptized into Christ and we have put on Christ. By putting on sacred vestments in antiquity, it was a reminder that they are to put on those attributes. And so if you go to a Greek Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic church, and you see the priest administer their sacrament, he will be wearing the vestments of the priesthood to remind the individual worshipers there that this individual priest represents Christ to the worshipers. And by putting on sacred vestments, he is a different person. We see this in the accruements of kingship in the ancient world. When the king would be anointed and put a crown on his head and would wear the robes of kingship, he's changed his nature. He is no longer Charles. He is King Charles, as it were. And in early Christianity, the Christians would be baptized and they would be clothed after they were baptized. They were baptized into Jesus and that act of putting on clothes was a reminder for them that they need to follow Christ. Similarly, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when we go to the temple, we receive sacred vestments that we put on to remind us of our covenant with the Lord. And as I look at across the spectrum of religious tradition, I see sacred vestments in so many religious traditions, and I think it's good. I think by them doing this, it reminds them that there's something bigger than them and that their faith is, as it were, a glue knitting them with other individuals of their faith. Sometimes there are things we need to take off, and sometimes there are things we need to put on. That's just beautiful symbolism in the gospel. Think about the invitation to take off. And think about the invitation to put on. So, put on Christ. Now, notice how that flows right into chapter 4. Paul wrote one epistle, he didn't break it into chapters, and so we need to see these sometimes as seamless instead of broken into chapters. Thank you for pointing that out, because Bryce, I do that all the time. I'll say, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, but I think, Bryce, you're hitting it on the head. This is one letter. This is one letter. He's writing it continuously. So, we just talked about the schoolmaster and becoming heirs. So he picks up that and repeats it in in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, you know what? There was a moment when the heir and the servant were not different at all. Think about young Prince George right now, just a, a little boy. If you didn't know that that was heir to the throne, you wouldn't see much difference between him. And Paul's saying, The heir and the servant are not that different when they're young. They're under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of this world. But then Christ came to save us, to redeem us, that we might receive. Ready? End of verse 5. This is beautiful language and critical symbolism. Christ came to redeem us that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. We became heirs because Christ adopted us. And it's only through our covenants. Remember, King Benjamin says, because of the covenant you have made, you have become the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. We become heirs to Christ when we put him on when we accept his redemption, when his atonement changes us, when we're no longer being tutored, but we are becoming, and then I become an adopted son and an heir. But if I don't go through that adoption of sons, I am no different than the servant in this case who isn't the heir. 
So the point is, you've got to put Christ on. You've got to become a son or daughter of adoption. And Christ becomes my parent, my father. I become his son or a woman becomes his daughter. And now I become an heir. And when I'm an heir, verse 7, therefore thou art no more a servant, but a son or a daughter. You have been born of Christ, his sons and his daughters. And if you are a son or a daughter, you are an heir of God. Someday, all that God has can be yours. You inherit that. Now again, but, here comes the big but. But don't go back. You can go back to being a servant. You can give up your heirship. You can give up your claim to Christ if you go back to your old habits. In verse 8, which Mike mentioned earlier, when you knew not God and you did those bad deeds, eh, it was fine. You didn't know. And like Paul said on Mars Hill, the Lord's kind of winking at you. But now, verse 9, Galatians 4, 9, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. Now you're doing it, and now it's serious. You've gone back to, now it was innocent before, now it's not, because you know better. And now you're in bondage. Why would you go back? See that theme flowing all throughout Galatians? Why are you going back to the lower and giving up the higher? You had achieved heir to the throne status, and now you've gone back to servant status. So don't go back. Yeah. Now, this leads us to the end of chapter four. And the way I read this is Paul is essentially reversing the argument of the Jerusalem Judaizers. The Jerusalem Judaizers that come from Jerusalem and teach these individuals are saying, hey, you Galatians are not Abraham's seed. And so Paul is going to reverse their argument. It has been suggested that Paul's response in Galatians in this end of chapter four may be directed towards an opposing viewpoint, which asserts that only individuals of Jewish descent and circumcised converts have the right to claim lineage as being children of Abraham. So Paul's going to address this. It may be that the teachers opposing Paul who are coming from Jerusalem were teaching the saints in Galatia that they were descendants of Abraham but through Ishmael. Now, it doesn't say that in here, but it's, it's, a, it's a possibility. And so because of that, Paul's going to reverse the argument, and he's going to say to them, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. That's verse 28. I see this as Paul reversing their argument. The people that come from Jerusalem are saying to these people of Galatia, we think, hey, you guys are not descended from Abraham. And Paul's going to reverse it and say, oh, yeah, you were, because you trust Jesus, you've come to Christ. And I think he's going to kind of pick up that theme and kind of point out what was the difference between the two sons. Verse 22, for as it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, one was by a bondsmaid and the other by a free woman. And I think the spirit of what he's trying to say is one person was kind of forced into the covenant. Hagar really didn't, of her own volition, come into the covenant. And Ishmael kind of represents, I really didn't come in by choice. I came in by lineage. I came in by tradition. I came in by history. But Isaac chose the covenant. I think what Paul is trying to say to them and to us is, you're not an inheritor of Abraham. You're not a child of Abraham simply because of the bloodline. You're a child of the covenant if you remake the covenant, if you re-promise and become what Abraham was. 
It's those who choose. It's those who commit, who make the covenant. It's Sarah and Isaac who are willing participants in the covenant, not Hagar and Ishmael who kind of, as Paul's trying to illustrate, were kind of forced into it. And so, yeah, you may have blood of Abraham in you. You might be the lineage. You might actually be a direct descendant of Abraham. It doesn't make you a child of Abraham and of the covenant. What makes you Isaac and not Ishmael is the willingness to participate in the covenant. It's the putting on of Christ. There's also kind of a subtle dig here. I don't know if this was intentional, but I'm just kind of reading this as kind of like a a dad joke. So he likens Hagar to Mount Sinai and Sarah, the other wife, to Jerusalem. And then he says, Sarah, or Jerusalem, in verse 26, is the mother of us all. Now, this is why I think it's funny and I think it's ironic. Some scholars would say uh, the mother church was the church in Jerusalem. Some scholars talk about this idea that because it's starting there, that's kind of the mother church. And so Paul is saying that Jerusalem is the mother of us all, and that's Sarah, the free woman. In other words, those of the uncircumcision. That's kind of Paul's take. Well, he's kind of undercutting his opponents because they're coming and saying, we're from the mother church. You guys have to live circumcision. And Paul's like, nope, they're doing it wrong. So I see that as kind of a dad joke in there. I don't know if it was intentional and maybe it's just me being weird reading Galatians 4. But then he continues in the next chapter. And like Bryce said, this is one continuous letter. And he's talking about how, hey, you guys have fallen from grace. That's verse 4. And then he says, you know, over and over again, if you have to be circumcised, you're a debtor to the law. That's verse three. And I mean, this is just me, but I'm going to say verse 12 is probably the most caustic verse of all of the things that Paul has written. It's very much softened in the King James. Chapter five, verse 12 reads, I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. They meaning the Judaizers from Jerusalem. Another translation goes like this. I wish that the people who are troubling your minds would castrate themselves. I mean, you don't get Paul any more caustic than that. Paul is just so upset that the teaching of these people from Jerusalem is that you have to be circumcised and live the law of Moses, that Paul really uses some harsh language there. Now, that's really tough. That's really tough speech, but that really does kind of jive with his approach in the third chapter, verse 1, where he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? that ye should not obey the truth. He's so frustrated, and I can just, this is just me, I can kind of see Paul just ripping out his hair, going, okay, how can I get this through? And so because of that, maybe he softens it a little bit and says, okay, let me do a different approach. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 5, let's walk in the Spirit and not the lust of the flesh. And so he's going to take two lists, two lists of attributes, and lay them out side by side in front of the Galatians and say, which one of these do you want in your life? And I really like the end of Galatians 5. And I got to say this, Bryce, Paul using a list, I think that's where you come in, Bryce. Is that right? (laughs) That's very much so. This is where Paul gets very practical. He's talked theory, put on Christ. Now, that's a beautiful phrase, put on Christ, but I can imagine being there saying, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean practical? And I love in the Book of Mormon where Alma preaches this beautiful sermon about planting the seed and growing the tree, and then the very next chapter, chapter 33, starts, now after Alma had spoken these words, they sent forth unto him desiring to know whether they should believe in one God, that they might obtain this fruit of which he had spoken, or how they should plant the seed. In other words, beautiful sermon, Alma, love the imagery, but what does that mean I need to do in my everyday life? How do I live that? And I love that Paul is now doing that. He says, okay, we've talked about being adopted by Christ, putting on Christ, letting Christ own you. You can walk in the Spirit, or you can fulfill the lust of the flesh. Putting off Christ is walking in the lust of the flesh. Putting on Christ is walking in the Spirit. 
and you can't do both. You might be able to for a while, but eventually you can't. Verse 17, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They are warring against you, and eventually one is going to kill the other. So either you consume the natural man, or the natural man will consume you. They are warring against each other. These are contrary, verse 17. You cannot give in to the natural man and enjoy the fruits of the Spirit. So now he gets very, very practical. The works of the flesh are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. And we could use different words like pride, revenge, getting even, anger, and wrath, and strife. If being at variance, if you are commonly at variance with other people, if you are breaking the law of chastity, if you are jealous and envious, if you lie and cheat and steal, you get the idea. If those are being manifested, you are putting off Christ. You are going back to the telestial room and holding on to telestial things. And that's a self-check. Are any of these things manifested in my life? Am I yielding to sexual temptations? Do I find myself thinking I'm better than other people? Do I find myself putting them down, demeaning them, degrading them? Do I hurt people physically or spiritually? That is putting off Christ. Now he says, let me give you the other list. This is what it means to put on Christ. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Kindness, we could add. Patience, we could add. Tender-hearted, lovingly dealing with people. Are you putting on Christ. You have to choose. Verse 24, they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Now, chapter 6 is the continuation of his list. For example, verse 2, you will bear one another's burden. One of the greatest evidences that you are putting on Christ is that you serve and help and bear other people's burdens. You can do all these other things, but you're missing the gospel of Jesus Christ if you are not blessing other people's lives, because that is the very essence of what Christ did. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness. Examine your life and ask yourself, are you putting on Christ? I have a great quote here, a great question. If you had a proven court that you are a Christian, what would you use as evidence? In other words, it's kind of asking that question like, okay, am I doing it? And then if, if I was going to be convicted in court of being a Christian, would there be any evidence to, to suggest this? And I think this really is one of the things Paul's saying is, 
His emphasis is the stuff you're talking about in chapter five and six, yep. the, the walking the way, being in the way of following Christ. And we've got to ask ourselves that question, don't we? Because I don't think anywhere in, in Galatians, Paul's saying you don't have to do stuff to follow Jesus. And he's going to say, it will manifest itself. Verse seven of chapter six, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you walk in the flesh, you will reap corruption. It will happen. You cannot give in to the natural man without the natural man somewhat consuming you. The more you give in to the natural man, the more it will consume you until it eventually takes over. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall reap life everlasting. Therefore, verse 9, let us be not weary in well-doing. Whenever I teach these verses, Bryce, I like to go to Alma 29, because in Alma 29, in the first few verses, Alma basically says these things. He says, listen, God will grant unto you according to your wills, whether it be unto life or unto death. You get to decide. And that's why I really like Ephesians 6, verse 7. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. This world is the perfect laboratory where God is allowing me to exercise my agency. And if I want to be a knucklehead and reap destruction, God is saying to me, Mike, I allot that unto you according to your will, whether it be unto life or unto death. This world will give me whatever I sow. And verse 10, I love, you have opportunity. We have therefore opportunity. That's what this world presents. You have every day an opportunity to put on the spirit or to put on the flesh. Every day is a new opportunity. Let us do good unto all men. That's the gist of everything. You want to say you put on Christ? You want to claim to be a Christian? If you want to say that all these ordinances and performances of the church, that reading my scriptures and going to the temple is making a difference— then let us do good unto all men. If you are not in the process of doing good to men, you have completely missed the point. Putting on Christ means you become what he is, and he went about doing good, helping, healing, serving. We have, therefore, opportunity. Let us do good unto all men. And with that, we will see you next week when we talk about the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. Thanks for listening and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.